Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The disaster that we are discussing this week is one of egregious negligence and is one that could have very well been prevented. The magnitude 9 earthquake that shook Japan in 2011 highlighted key flaws in nuclear plant safety, reactor design, and overall operating protocols. This week, we're discussing the initial earthquake that occurred in Japan, the tsunami, and finally the disaster at the Fukushima nuclear power facility. Before we start today, I do have one topic to cover. Do you want to help the show continue to grow? Well, have you considered joining the Destination Disaster Patreon page? If you choose to join, no matter which level, you'll gain access to an exclusive group where you can chat with other members, gain access to merchandise discounts, and a monthly AMA where we can all gather and discuss different topics. The Community Responder tier, or the Entry Level tier, is $5 per month. Here, you'll gain access to the private Patreon community, monthly AMAs, a Patreon shoutout, and an exclusive sticker once you complete your first month's billing cycle. The next tier is the Section Chief, or $10 tier. Here, you'll gain access to all previous tier benefits, and will also gain a 20% discount on merch, four free Destination Disaster stickers, and an exclusive coffee mug once you complete your first month's billing cycle. And finally, we have the Emergency Management Director, or $20 tier. Here, you'll gain all benefits from the previous two tiers. You'll also receive an exclusive Destination Disaster merchandise bundle, hand-selected by myself, and a long-sleeve shirt that is not available on the show's store page. Please know that there is no obligation and you can choose to end your support after a month if you choose to do so. Any amount of support is greatly appreciated. Please know that there is also a 7 day free trial where you can just gain access to the community to see if this is something that you want to support. Please consider joining today.
Beginning on March 11, 2011, a magnitude 9 earthquake struck just off the eastern coast of Sendai, Japan. This earthquake was the fourth largest ever recorded to have occurred in history. Immediately following this earthquake, tsunami waves rippled from the epicenter at over 400 miles per hour, quickly impacting the coast and traveling inland. The earthquake triggered powerful tsunami waves that reached heights of up to 40.5 meters or 133 feet in Miyako and Tohoku's Iwate Prefecture, and which, in the Sendai area, traveled up to 700 kilometers per hour or 535 miles per hour and up to 10 kilometers or 6 miles inland. Residents of Sendai had only 8 to 10 minutes of warning and more than 100 evacuation sites were washed away. The snowfall which accompanied the tsunami and the freezing temperatures hindered rescue efforts greatly. For instance, Ashinomaki, the city with the most deaths, was 0 degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit as the tsunami hit. I have to reiterate, this was the fourth strongest earthquake ever recorded. Followed by this main earthquake, a series of aftershocks of magnitude 6 or higher were recorded, which only added to the catastrophic damage that was reported. The earthquake moved Honshu 2.4 meters or 8 feet east, shifted the earth on its axis by estimates of between 10 centimeters or 4 inches and 25 centimeters or 10 inches. It increased earth's rotational speed by 1.8 microseconds per day and generated infrasound waves detected in the perturbations of the low orbiting gravity field and steady state ocean circulation explorer satellite. Initially, the earthquake caused sinking a part of Honshu's Pacific coast by up to roughly a meter, but after about three years, the coast rose back and then kept on rising to exceed its original height. As search and rescue operations began, the enormity of the damage had set in. Floodwaters had traveled miles inland, taking with it vegetation and the debris of buildings that had been destroyed by the tsunami waves. According to Japan's National Police Agency, it's reported that over 45,000 buildings were destroyed and over 100,000 suffered some form of damage from the intense shaking. I can't imagine the fear of those having to experience this earthquake. While earthquakes are a part of life in Japan, this massive shaking was one for the books. A report by the National Police Agency of Japan on September 10, 2018 listed 121,778 buildings as totally collapsed, a further 280,926 buildings as half collapsed, and another 699,180 buildings as partially damaged. The earthquake and tsunami also caused extensive and severe structural damage in northeastern Japan, including heavy damage to road and railways as well as fires in many areas and a dam collapse. Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan said, in the 65 years after the end of World War II, this is the toughest and most difficult crisis for Japan. Around 4.4 million households in northeastern Japan were left without electricity and 1.5 million without water. As if to make matters worse, winter weather had set in near immediately following the earthquake, with many areas seeing snowfall, slowing search and rescue efforts by making conditions slippery, and increasing the risk of landslides in more mountainous areas. Temperatures recorded on that day were either at or near freezing. I stated just a moment ago that Due to the immense amount of debris and garbage generated by this disaster, it significantly hindered search and rescue operations. It is actually estimated that over 5 million tons of waste was generated, conglomerating into massive piles that too had to be searched for survivors. In the surrounding area, catastrophic damage created additional challenges for emergency personnel. 
Large fires erupted at other power-generating facilities such as the Onagawa Nuclear Facility. The fire here was located in the turbine room and was quickly extinguished with no risk of meltdown. Cosmo Oil Company reported a large fire at their oil production facility in Ichibara in the Chiba Prefecture. This facility at the time was capable of producing up to 220,000 barrels of oil per day. The fire that erupted here took 10 days to extinguish. Other oil refineries also reported fires, but due to the tsunami waves that washed inland, this prevented firefighters from extinguishing those blazes. Infrastructure-wise, the sophisticated Japanese public transit network also suffered severe disruptions as emergency personnel surveyed for damage. One of the most heavily damaged was the Tohoku Shinkansen train line. The Tohoku Shinkansen line was the worst hit, with JR East estimating that 1,100 sections of the line, varying from collapsed station roofs to bent power pylons, would need repairs. Services on the Tohoku Shinkansen partially resumed only in the Kanto area on March 15th, with one round-trip service per hour between Tokyo and Nasu Shiabara, and Tohoku area service partially resumed on March 22nd between Morioka and Shin Aramori. Services on Akita Shinkansen resumed with limited numbers of trains on March 18th, and service between Tokyo and Shin Aramori was restored by May, but at lower speeds due to ongoing restoration work. The pre-earthquake timetable was not reinstated until late September 2011. Telecommunications networks suffered some of the most severe damage, with networks suffering major connectivity issues, which included cell phone and internet failures. Immediately after the earthquake, Cellular communication was jammed across much of Japan due to a surge of network activity, and American broadcaster NPR was unable to reach anyone in Sendai with a working phone or access to the internet. Internet services were largely unaffected in areas where basic infrastructure remained, despite the earthquake having damaged portions of several undersea cable systems landing in the affected regions. These systems were able to reroute around affected segments onto redundant links. Luckily, emergency personnel had planned for this risk and had other methods of communication, such as satellite phones, to communicate with one another and command centers throughout response and recovery operations. We're going to take a quick break right here, and once we return, we're going to transition into the nuclear disaster segment of this episode. Japan is home to several nuclear generating stations, all of which automatically shut down following the earthquake. However, fatal flaws in the design of one key station would plunge the already struggling nation into a new, evolved emergency. As this earthquake shook, several key events were taking place at the Fukushima nuclear plant that would spell disaster in the coming days. First, the immense shaking that took place triggered failsafes at the nuclear power plant, which included automatically shutting down all three reactors. Nearly one hour later, a massive tsunami would top the seawall meant to protect this facility from this exact threat, flooding all the reactor buildings and damaging several key components. The waves first damaged the seawater pumps along the shoreline, disabling the 10 water-cooled emergency diesel generators. The waves then flooded all turbine and reactor buildings, damaging emergency diesel generators there and other electrical components and connections located on the ground or basement levels at approximately 3.41 p.m. 
The switching stations that provide power from the three emergency diesel generators located higher on the hillside also failed when the building that housed them flooded. One air-cooled emergency diesel generator, that of Unit 6, was unaffected by the flooding and continued to operate. The DC batteries for Units 1, 2, and 4 were also inoperable shortly after flooding. A team was quickly dispatched to the reactor building to begin injecting water into the reactor vessel to initiate cooling. However, by the time the team reached the building, it was discovered that pressures had already risen significantly and high levels of radiation within the reactor building indicated damage to the reactor core. In order to use the diesel-driven fire pump, the pressures needed to be quickly reduced below 0.8 megapascals. Staff at the reactor building began venting the building. However, once the pressures reduced enough to begin operating the diesel-driven fire pump, this piece of machinery was found to be inoperable. Unfortunately, the DDFP was found to be inoperable and a fire truck had to be hooked up to the fire pump system. This process took about four hours as the fire pump injection port was hidden under debris. The next morning, on March 12th at about 4 a.m., approximately 12 hours after the loss of power, fresh water injection into the reactor vessel began, later replaced by a water line at 9.15, leading directly from the water storage tank to the injection port to allow for continuous operation. The fire engine had to be periodically refilled. This continued into the afternoon until the fresh water tank was nearly depleted. In response, injection stopped at 2.53, and the injection of seawater, which had collected in a nearby valve pit, began. Power was restored to Unit 1 and 2 using a mobile generator at 3.30 on March 12th. Six minutes later, a hydrogen explosion would damage the water intake lines in the emergency power generator. It would take four hours to repair the seawater intake line and begin the process of filling the valve pit. The seawater injection lines were repaired and put back into operation at 7.04 p.m. until the valve pit was nearly depleted of seawater at 1.10 a.m. on the 14th. The seawater injection was temporarily stopped in order to refill the valve pit with seawater using a variety of emergency service and JSDF vehicles. However, the process to restart seawater injection was interrupted by another explosion in Unit 3 reactor building at 11.01, which damaged water lines and prompted another evacuation. Injection of seawater into Unit 1 would not resume until that evening, after 18 hours without cooling. Due to this prolonged period of time without cooling, officials estimated that the reactor fuel melted into the concrete containment base. At Unit 2, prior to the earthquake and subsequent tsunami, the reactor was operating normally. Following the earthquake, Unit 2 also suffered a total loss of AC and DC power, and preemptively, operators assumed a loss of coolant event and began preparing to respond appropriately. Unit 2 was the only other operating reactor which experienced total loss of AC and DC power. Prior to the blackout, the RCIC, or Reactor Core Isolation Cooling Unit, was functioning as designed without the need for operator intervention. The relief safety valve would intermittently release steam directly into the pressure containment vessel suppression torus at its design pressure, and the RCIC properly replenished lost coolant. However, following the total blackout of Unit 2, the plant operators, similar to Unit 1, assumed the worst-case scenario and prepared for a loss of coolant incident. Since the RCIC system was operating normally, emergency efforts were focused on Unit 1. By March 14th, after nearly 70 hours of continuous operation, Unit 2 finally failed, and with no way to appropriately manage the rapidly building pressure, plant operators devised a plan to manually vent the pressure until containment loss would officially occur. At 1 p.m. on the 14th, the RCIC pump for Unit 2 failed after 68 hours of continuous operation. With no way to vent the pressure containment vessel, 
In response, a plan was devised to delay containment failure by venting the reactor into the pressure containment vessel using the SRV in order to allow for seawater injection into the reactor vessel. The following morning, on March 15th at 6.15 a.m., another explosion was heard on site, coinciding with a rapid drop of suppression chamber pressure to atmospheric pressure, interpreted as a malfunction of suppression chamber pressure management. Due to concerns about growing radiological hazard on site, almost all workers evacuated the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Surrounding cities and towns had to be urgently evacuated as the radioactive release continued, putting over 150,000 at risk of exposure to radiation. Following the hydrogen explosions, officials began the arduous evacuation process and declaration of exclusion zones. In the initial hours of the accident, in response to station blackout and uncertainty regarding the cooling status of Units 1 and 2, a 2-kilometer radius evacuation of 1,900 residents was ordered at 8.50. However, due to difficulty coordinating with the national government, a 3-kilometer evacuation order of 6,000 residents and 10-kilometer shelter-in-place order for 45,000 residents was established nearly simultaneously at 9.23. The following morning at 5.44, this evacuation radius was expanded to 10 kilometers by local authorities in response to the Unit 1 core damage and plans to vent the pressure containment vessel later that day. The evacuation radius was further revised at 625 to 20 kilometers, involving a total of 70,000 residents, in response to the hydrogen explosion at Unit 1. However, miscommunication of this final evacuation order resulted in those within 20 kilometers to shelter in place. Additionally, many municipalities independently ordered evacuations ahead of orders from the national government due to loss of communication with authorities. At the time of the 3-kilometer evacuation order, the majority of residents within the zone had already evacuated. This nuclear disaster did not just have local consequences. In fact, this disaster prompted several European countries to officially move to deactivate their remaining nuclear reactors out of an abundance of caution. With populations continuing to expand, it's feared that a meltdown event could place hundreds of thousands at an unnecessary risk. However, to reiterate, nuclear power is safe and effective and only becomes a risk when those in charge choose to ignore warnings and necessary safety precautions, which is what happened at Fukushima and within Japan as a whole. Japan has a shaky history of power companies manipulating the public to gain support for nuclear power. Several scientific officials have tried to convince these companies that building massive nuclear generating facilities in an earthquake and tsunami prone country raises the risk of man-made accidents exponentially. Professor Kashuhiko Ishibashi, one of the seismologists who have taken an active interest in the topic, coined the term Jinpatsu Shinsai from the Japanese words for nuclear power and quake disaster to express the potential worst case catastrophe that would ensue. Dr. Kiyumogi, former chair of the Japanese Coordinating Committee for Earthquake Prediction, has expressed similar concerns, stating in 2004 that the issue is a critical problem which can bring a catastrophe to Japan through a man-made disaster. Warnings from Kunihiko Shimazaki, a professor of seismology at the University of Tokyo, were also ignored. In 2004, as a member of an influential cabinet office committee on offshore earthquakes, Mr. Shimazaki warned that Fukushima's coast was vulnerable to tsunamis more than twice as tall as the forecasts of as much as 5 meters put forth by regulators and Tokyo Electric. Minutes of the meeting on February 19, 2004 show that the government bureaucrats running the committee moved quickly to exclude his views from the committee's final report. He said the committee did not want to force Tokyo Electric to make expensive upgrades at the plant.
These warnings continued from other government party officials, fearful that if tsunami waves were to overtop the barriers at Fukushima, that a nuclear disaster would be imminent. Once again, these warnings fell upon deaf ears. In fact, the former chairman for Japan's Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency, Yoshinobu Terasaka, said that such an event was practically impossible. Finally, three years before the earthquake and subsequent tsunami, the International Atomic Energy Agency also raised concerns with TEPCO officials about the possibility of nuclear accident should tsunami waves overtop the protective barriers. At a meeting of the G8's Nuclear Safety and Security Group held in Tokyo in 2008, an IAEA expert warned that a strong earthquake with a magnitude above 7.0 could be a serious problem for Japan's nuclear power stations. Before Fukushima, 14 lawsuits charging that risks had been ignored or hidden were filed in Japan, revealing a disturbing pattern in which operators underestimated or hid seismic dangers to avoid costly upgrades and keep operating. But all the lawsuits were unsuccessful. Underscoring the risks facing Japan, a 2012 Research Institute investigation has determined there is a 70% chance of a magnitude 7 earthquake striking the Tokyo metropolitan area within the next four years and 98% over the next 30 years. The March 2011 earthquake was a magnitude 9. Several studies and protective upgrades had been recommended well before this disaster, all the way back to 2006 when a new regulatory guide was released called the 2006 Regulatory Guide for Reviewing Seismic Design of Nuclear Power Reactor Facilities. Professor Inibashi, who was part of the subcommittee, a strong proponent of nuclear safety in the country, ultimately resigned at the final meeting of the subcommittee after he found much of the research conducted during this event to be unscientific. In fact, out of the 19-member subcommittee that was formed, 11 participants were from the Japan Electric Association, which aimed to promote profits and continuous operation over necessary safety upgrades. The subcommittee membership included Professor Ishibashi. However, his proposal that the standards for survey and active faults should be reviewed was rejected and he resigned at the final meeting, claiming the review process was unscientific and the outcome rigged to suit the interests of the Japan Electric Association, which had 11 of its committee members on the 19-member government subcommittee. Ishibashi had subsequently claimed that although the new guide brought in the most far-reaching changes since 1978, it was seriously flawed because it underestimated the design basis of earthquake ground motion. He had also claimed that the enforcement system is a shambles and questioned the independence of the Nuclear Safety Commission after a senior nuclear and industrial safety agency official appeared to rule out a new review of the NSC's seismic design guide in 2007. In the aftermath of this disaster, the earthquake and subsequent aftershocks would be 13,386. The earthquake generated tsunamis that impacted the eastern coastline of Japan, with the largest wave reaching heights of 133 feet, which was measured in Iwate. The combination of events would ultimately lead to 19,759 deaths, 6,242 injuries, and 2,553 people who still remain missing to this very day. Several countries would deploy resources including Australia, India, New Zealand, South Korea, and the United States. International aid organizations such as the Red Cross and Red Crescent Society too responded and pledged both monetary and material support to Japan. Due to the shaking and tsunami, search and rescue operations were hampered initially due to the difficulty in moving personnel and the inability to begin operations due to inclement weather. Once operations did begin, it was hard to identify an area to start because where towns had once stood, many were just flat parcels of land with only foundations remaining. In the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster, 
Early intervention, evacuation, and establishment of exclusion zones truly helped to prevent further death and injury. While there were deaths recorded, most occurred at the time of evacuation. Only one death has been reported as a result of radioactive interaction, and that is a result of lung cancer and occurred four years later. 2,202 died during the evacuation efforts and occurred primarily among the elderly population. And finally, non-fatal diseases and injuries recorded during this disaster included six cancer or leukemia diagnoses, 36 physical injuries, and two suffering from radiation burns. This disaster could have been far worse, but thanks to the staff at the Fukushima plant for reacting quickly to at least attempt to cool those reactors experiencing critical pressure buildups, this brought several days of necessary time to assess the risk and ultimately order the evacuation of over 150,000 people from the towns that dotted the region around Fukushima. Had adequate safety and protective measures been taken, the tsunami would have not overtopped the walls that lined the sea, and this would have prevented the meltdown that occurred. Instead, officials chose to ignore safety warnings from scientific officials for nearly a decade before this earthquake occurred. Luckily, it seems that mentality has changed for the better. Following this disaster, several key safety and protective upgrades have been completed at all of Japan's nuclear facilities, and in this most recent earthquake that occurred on January 1st, 2024, all nuclear facilities reported little to no damage. I want to thank you all for listening this week. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to leave a like, rate it 5 stars, and share it with those around you. Please consider joining the Patreon if you are able to do so, as this will only help us continue to grow. Our shout out this week is Thomas, who is supporting the show at the emergency management director level and has been doing so since 2021. I want to thank you for your support. Please join us next week where we will be discussing the Monaga coal mine disaster. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.